The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of October 16th, 2023. On this week's show, Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim will join us for a conversation about Speaker of the House candidate and former Ohio State wrestling coach Jim Jordan and the wrestlers who've been speaking out about what Jordan knew and what he didn't do about a sexual abuse scandal at the school. We'll also discuss the sports journalism ethics brouhaha about the Braves' Orlando Arcia lightly mocking the Phillies' Bryce Harper. And we'll talk about the NBA newsbreaker rivalry between ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski and the Athletics' Shams Charania, and whether either one of them or any of us is a winner in that rivalry. I am in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our latest season, One Year 1955, is out now. Please listen. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Good. How'd you do on Scrabble this weekend? Oh, I did well. Played in a tournament in Lake George. Stacked field. I was seated 24th out of 24 in Division One. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Rough, rough go. But I finished seven and eight. My rating went over 1,700 for the first time in a long time. And I beat my daughter on the live stream. Sorry, Chloe. Just absolute brutal, merciless takedown. Uh, well, congratulations. Thank you. And joining us this week for the show, the whole show, it's the former Sports Illustrated writer, the former host of ESPN TV's High Noon, the former host of the podcast ESPN Daily, and currently employed in the present day as the host of Meadowlark Media's new podcast and YouTube show Pablo Torre Finds Out, which has in its short history gone deep on Russell Wilson's presidential ambitions, revealed what Jordan Poole told Draymond Green before Draymond punched him, and solved the mystery of the $5 billion check that a former Duke basketball captain tried to use to buy the Washington Commanders. Pablo Torre, thanks for being here and doing your part to reveal the shady underbelly of Duke basketball. It is my enduring honor to be an unranked Scrabble player in your company, yes. <laughs> I should also say, Pablo, that I'm back in the top 100 in North America. Oh, there it is. I was going to say, when is, when, is, when is the brag, when does the real brag come out? And it took about two minutes. Very good. My daughter's 40th, though, so, you know. <laughs> so I should say, I've told you this before, Stefan, whether you remember it or not, I loved Word Freak. It got me briefly addicted to Scrabble, and it gave me just enough credibility to be the guy who plausibly would be good at Scrabble, only to eventually encounter guys who are, and then absolutely just like crawl into like a turtle shell of just like total, nope, cannot compete with top 100 player Stefan Fatsis. You're welcome back anytime, Pablo. Do you feel like if Word Freak had been slightly better, then you would have been more addicted to Scrabble? Is that <laughs> the fault of the book? <laughs> I was waiting on some level for like the cinematic adaptation to really get consumed by it. Yeah, I'm waiting too. <laughs> In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to discuss the revelation that Pat McAfee pays Aaron Rodgers millions of dollars for his exclusive weekly interviews and what that says about McAfee and Rogers and about sports media. To hear that conversation, you have to be a Slate Plus member. As a member, you get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows, ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts, and you get to support us, which we appreciate. Slate.com slash hangup plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. 
As we record this on Monday morning, Republican Ohio Representative Jim Jordan is trying to become the next Speaker of the House, with CNN reporting that a vote could come as soon as Tuesday. Jordan, who voted against certifying the 2020 election and who, I'm guessing, is currently somewhere raging against the Biden crime family, will not get the support of any Democrats in the House chamber and will likely face at least some Republican opposition, too. But there's also a group outside Congress that's opposed to him becoming House Speaker, Ohio State University wrestlers. Jordan was an assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State from 1987 to 1995, a period during which team physician Richard Strauss sexually abused male athletes at the school. As Sports Illustrated's John Wertheim has reported, at least 11 former wrestlers have said that Ohio State coaches, including Jordan, knew about the abuse and chose to do nothing. Jordan, meanwhile, has denied knowing anything about what Strauss was doing and has personally attacked the wrestlers who have said otherwise. This past week, the wrestlers have been firing back. One of them, Mike Schick, told NBC News, Do you really want a guy in that job who chose not to stand up for his guys? Is that the kind of character trait you want for a House speaker? Joining us now is John Wertheim. Thanks for being here, John. Hey, guys. How are you? Um, You have a piece out now about Jim Jordan and the wrestlers speaking out against him. But your first big reported story was published three years ago, and it was headlined, Why Aren't More People Talking About the Ohio State Sex Abuse Scandal? Can you start by just telling us the baseline facts? What happened at Ohio State? For 20 years, a team doctor, Richard Strauss, was essentially a a serial predator. He worked in the athletic department, and this was an open secret. There were coaches that even joked that, uh, you know, you don't run your windsprints fast enough, we're going to make you see Dr. Strauss. He had a series of nicknames, and essentially every physical examination he gave athletes, all of them male, and ended up in some instance of uh, of sexual assault, which ranged from inappropriate touching to outright rape. These are athletes, mostly non-revenue sports, though some football. Middle America, late 70s to late 90s, and there's power dynamic issues. There's a, a vocabulary issue. This obviously predates Me Too. And essentially, these athletes later came to the realization that they had been sexually assaulted, sexually abused by this doctor in 2018. There was a a study commissioned, uh, an independent investigation that essentially uh, hundreds and hundreds of athletes came forward. There have since been more than 100 settlements. Jim Jordan was the wrestling coach. Disproportionate number of the survivors were wrestlers, and Jim Jordan has absolutely denied ever having knowledge of Richard Strauss, despite, I think it's more than a dozen of his wrestlers now saying that's not the case. And I think more important, as you referenced, Josh, what what I think a lot of people find particularly galling is not only has he denied ever having heard of this, but has since essentially taken the institution side and by extension taken the perpetrator side and has sort of one by one dismissed these wrestlers. A lot of times these are guys he coached, these are guys he recruited, and he has sort of one by one explained why these survivors are not to be believed, why they have motivations for lying. And this has really caused quite a schism within, certainly within the wrestling community, I think within Ohio State Athletics. But for for some reason, this this has not seemed to have uh, done anything to impede Jim Jordan's political career. John, it beggars belief that Jim Jordan didn't know what was going on. Ohio State contested none of the findings of that internal report, right? And they've they've settled with more than 300 people, spending more than $60 million to settle cases. And there are still dozens and dozens of complaints outstanding. Why hasn't this gotten more traction and become more 
of an issue for him. Why has he been able to go on Fox News as he did a few years ago, uh, accuse the victims of being of lying effectively? Yeah, I mean, my sort of overarching theory here is that the same forces at play that enabled this predatory doctor to abuse athletes for 20 years, the lack of a vocabulary, the power imbalance where these athletes didn't want to stir anything up or even, you know, be, be risked not being medically cleared. Um, the same reasons why this was able to persist for 20 years are the same reasons why this story never quite got the attention it deserved. I mean, it's it sort of indelicate and, and crass perhaps to compare scandals, but certainly in terms of, of sweep and scale and number of athletes impacted, this is far larger than what happened with Larry Nassar of Michigan State or, or Joe Paterno or even the University of Michigan. I think the fact that these are men on men, I think there's something about the culture of a locker room. And that's something that's raised. It said there's really been a split within the Ohio wrestling community, the Ohio State wrestling community, where some of these athletes find it fiercely disloyal that Jim Jordan never said anything, that he denied doing anything. He breached every possible standard of care. But there also is this factor that thinks it's disloyal to bring this up. And, hey, look, one of ours is this high-ranking congressman. This could be the guy who literally is uh, third in line to be the president of the United States, and you are going to append this by trotting out these old charges. So the long answer is I think that a lot of the same factors that have enabled this scandal and enabled this, this horrible predation to persist for so long for all these years, I, I think that's the same reason why this hasn't got the attention it probably deserves. And it's certainly the reason why I think Jim Jordan is able to continue his political ascent in spite of what would be some pretty damning fact pattern on its face. But the ascent, John, like it's not merely, wow, there's a tonnage of moral horrors in this guy's background, allegedly. It's also that he is himself alleging those same horrors upon others, right? Like there's the, the narrative richness here is is so on the nose and absurd. The idea that the guy who is alleging groomers and pedophiles everywhere is himself the assistant coach to a head coach, Russ Hellickson, who you write, did attend some sort of like reunion, right? With like the wrestlers in which the head coach said, at the very least, I should have known more. And he had to grapple with all of this testimony firsthand. That's a great point, Pablo. Here, here you have a politician, certainly a flank of a political party that has absolutely weaponized sexual predation, right? It's groomers and pedos. And a lot of times it's without any basis in fact, but this is so vile. It can be weaponized to, uh, effective political use. I mean, I, I wrote, you know, it, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. How many times has she thrown around that accusation? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's at least Stefanik talking about pedo grifters were responsible for the shortage in baby formula. And here, a few seats down, your colleague actually had a real life encounter with a sexual predator. And what did he do? According to more than a dozen athletes that he coached, he did nothing. And then when he was confronted about these allegations years later, he, he not only continued his denial, but then is trying to tell us why the, the victims and the survivors all had an ulterior motive to lie. They know the truth. This guy had financial distress. This guy's been in prison. Hypocrisy and irony doesn't really quite paint the dimensions of it. It's galling. Just so people know even more of the background, these aren't just like kind of vague suggestions that maybe Jim Jordan knew. There's a couple specific things that you cite, John. Danyasha Yetz, a wrestler, says that he he complained to Jordan that Richard Strauss attempted to pull down his shorts when he went to see Strauss about a thumb injury. 
He told Jordan about this, and Jordan told Danyashi Yetz if Strauss ever approached him in a sexual manner, he'd kill him. Another wrestler, Dan Ritchie, says he was present when Jordan was informed of abuse from Strauss. And Jordan's response, if he did that to me, I'd snap his neck like a twig of dried balsa wood. Now, these sound like things that Jim Jordan would say. I obviously wasn't there. Um, but the just level of specificity here for these people just to be conjuring it from thin air just completely defies logic. And yet, as we've been saying, Jordan deny, 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 and it doesn't seem to have impeded him in any way, despite these extraordinarily specific recollections of these men. Something else that I, that I find damning, I think you're, that's absolutely right. I mean, this isn't the usual conversation in sports, right, is sort of like, should they have known? Did they know? Did the coach set up this plausible deniability? I mean, here you have guys who are recounting with startling levels of, of exactitude dialogue. And actually, I said this and he said that. I mean, they're able to sort of with, with real specificity, as you say, Josh, there's also a referee who has absolutely zero incentive to lie. He wasn't even a team member who says, yes, Jim Jordan knew. You just sort of look at the at the fact pattern. You look at how long Richard Strauss had this this reign of predation. You look at sort of the, the, the physical dynamics. He was in the locker room. I think, Pablo, you mentioned that there, there was a summit a few summers ago where the wrestlers got together and said, listen, this is just absolutely, this is creating this rupture in the program. You know, we're now middle-aged men, some of the you know, 50s and 60s, years, and we need to resolve this. And they were able to get together in central Ohio at a high school and sort of have one of these. No one at the high school knew why there were a large number of uh, middle-aged men in leather jackets wearing somber expressions walking into the high school. But they sort of had this, you know, it was sort of like this tribal summit. And Russ Hellickson, who's sort of this hidebound coach who's now in his mid-70s, who has been denying this all along. I mean, I have multiple former wrestlers essentially say he didn't want to make a public statement, but at some level he admitted this dereliction of duty. He kept using the word. I knew he was quirky. Clearly they had reached some sort of meeting of the minds, and the coach, and without outright saying it, sort of admitted that uh, there was an issue and he didn't address it as he should have. Jim Jordan did not show up. Jim Jordan has never... That anything, and I think one thing that a wrestler, Mike DeSabato, is one of sort of the the whistleblower, one thing he said to me that I, I think we ought to ponder, even if you didn't know, which again is is implausible basing on impossible based on the facts, but even if you want to give this guy every benefit of the doubt and say Jim Jordan didn't know, the fact that when he did know, he didn't pick up the phone and say, oh my God, how are you doing? I'm so sorry. What can I do to be supportive? that his first instinct was to basically go on national TV and explain why everyone making an allegation had a motivation to lie is almost more damning than his initial denial. You look at the fact pattern, and it is absolutely galling. At one point, Jim Jordan commissioned some sort of group to try and give these wrestlers talking points, why they ought to support him. Uh, Mark Coleman was was an NCAA champion, so this towering All-American wrestler for Ohio State, actually the UFC's first heavyweight champ, and he had given a quote that essentially said, if Jimmy's saying he didn't know he had dementia, we all knew it was an open secret. That was consistent with the account of dozens of other wrestlers. And soon Mark Coleman told me he faced all sorts of pressure. He wouldn't specify, but then he ended up walking that statement back and saying, actually, he didn't have firsthand knowledge. He was just speculating. Clearly someone had gotten to him. And I think that, um, again, w whatever Jim Jordan's errors of omission were in the late 80s and early 90s, I, I think what he's done subsequent is, is much more grievous. And puzzling almost, or maybe not puzzling in 
today's political climate. Jim Jordan is making a political calculation that either this won't be investigated in the kind of detail that brought down Harvey Weinstein and triggered the Me Too movement, or that people just won't care. And that seems almost as callous um, as anything else here. Again, assuming that, you know, even if you take Jordan at face value that he didn't know 30 years ago or 40 years ago, what had happened to watch this sort of political maneuvering now, which assumes that this will not be an issue that will bring him down is disgusting. Yeah. I mean, I think to, to Pablo's point, once you have made this pedophilia grooming pedos, once you've made that a central talking point, once you've sort of weaponized that, the fact that you might be somehow complicit, that you might somehow be, Roped into a scandal involving this and playing a central role would be absolutely, uh, I mean, that, that could be your political end. So I think this, this isn't just sort of a cowardly politician who's, look, that's in the past and I'm making this denial, however implausible. I think there's a calculation that when you have doubled down on pedophilia as this, this horrible bugbear that, um, you know, you, you use as an attack, the fact that you played this central role could end your political career. So this, this sort of has special valence with that. Well, I'm curious your sense of of him as as his fear is concerned, like political fear or otherwise. Does he feel like somebody to you in your reporting who is worried about something derailing his ambitions to be Speaker of the House or otherwise? This this is clearly someone who is ferociously ambitious. This is clearly all a calculation. I mean, it. it it's, it's got to be awfully damning to have all of these wrestlers. And, and again, not to generalize, but the, the Ohio State wrestling locker room is not this flamingly liberal hotbed. I mean, these, these are sort of middle of America guys. Uh, a lot of them were very supportive of Jim Jordan, if, if only because he was part of this tribe that they came from. Several of them said that they're conservative and that their opposition to him as speaker is not because they're they're Democrats. Exactly. And, and the fact that they take great measures to stress that, I think, is something worth noting as well. This is a it's a political calculation. And I think, you know, we, we certainly see this in other contexts, but you, you muddy the water enough. You sow enough doubt. I don't know who to believe. Everyone sort of throws up their arms. We all have the attention span of, of gnats anyway. And I think, you know, I, I think there was a real calculation here that eventually the train would move on and we'd become outraged about something else. And again, the, the fact that this is not Me Too, this is not gymnast. These are big, tough guy wrestlers. Which I think is one reason, again, this was allowed to fester for 20 years. Hey, why don't you just kick the guy's ass? It's something that I, I heard uh, repeatedly in the reporting. I think there's a real calculation. If, if it costs me a couple of points and if, if I can't show my face at the next wrestling reunion, uh, so be it. I mean, I would encourage people to watch that Brett Bear interview where not only is there this implausible denial, but the sort of going wrestler by wrestler and throwing these guys under the bus with, with personal specific accounts of why their credibility should be challenged. It's false. I mean, I never saw, never heard of, never was told about any type of abuse. If I had been, I would have dealt with it. Our coaching staff, um, we would have dealt with. These were our student athletes. A good coach puts the, puts the interests of his student athletes first. We would have dealt with it if we'd have known about anything that happened um, if, in fact, there are victims, they deserve justice. There's an investigation going on. At one point, he says, you know, I know these guys know the truth. Basically, every single person's lying. Again, never mind, as you say, Josh, that the, the school itself has contested none of the findings. I think there's there's a political calculus here. And I think at some level, it tells you how grave he finds this, that he is willing to go to these lengths. 
One last question, I think for all of you guys, maybe Pablo, you can go first. I, I personally feel like it's overdetermined that Jim Jordan shouldn't be Speaker of the House, even if none of this had ever happened. And so is there in some way something gross isn't quite the right word, but like this is not a story about Jim Jordan. It's about Richard Strauss. It's about what he did to all of these athletes. And so making this a story about the real story about the Ohio State wrestling scandal is should Jim Jordan be Speaker of the House? Like, are we focusing on the wrong thing? Are we allowing ourselves to get derailed? Or is does Jordan's role here, his what he said, does it actually speak to something about him that's so important that we should be talking about? Or just about bystanders and how we should all act in general. So this is actually the right conversation to have. Yeah, it does feel like all levels of this conversation are symptomatic of a larger, deeper, more horrifying rot, (laughs) admittedly. Like the idea of, well, maybe we can get Jim Jordan on hypocrisy detective work. It's like, well, how about the stuff that he actually did or did not do? Or what about the victims who are, in fact, like pleading to sports writers, like, please, will anyone listen to us? Is this angle enough? And that is, of course, like uh, in context, pretty depressing. I do think what John is saying, though, like what I'm left with here is this idea of, okay, what does it take to actually pull the lever of American attention in a way that brings justice to certainly politicians who feel no guardrails of shame? And the idea that I don't know, man, like we reckon with male privilege a lot, that term, what does it mean? It does feel like in this specific context, the idea of here are a bunch of manly men who got molested don't really care. Like if that's the sort of bottom line uh, takeaway from this, I do think that we should spare a thought for the people who, because of power dynamics in that locker room and in locker rooms just like it, end up basically screaming, to to the heavens and getting very little back. I mean, it all speaks to the vulnerability of young athletes um, put in a position of subservience to people that control their athletic scholarships, their times on campus, their ability to reach out. I mean, we've made progress in the last 40 years um, in support networks, but it's taken You know, it's taken these gigantic scandals that lasted for years and years and years with people abusing athletes for them to come out. Maybe, maybe there will be some moment of reporting or revelation that will tip this into a Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nassar kind of level of attention, but I'm not sure what it is, John. Do you have a sense of what it might take for this to sort of flip and become a, a an actual national story with true consequences? Well, the, Richard Strauss, we should add, uh, took his life in, in 2005, so we don't have the, you know, the, the, the gymnast confronting Larry Nathan was very powerful. We don't have that. But no, I mean, the, the term open secret that I kept hearing, a running joke and open secret were sort of two phrases in, in heavy rotation. I want, I want to read you. This is the report that the university was given. You know, the university personnel had knowledge of complaints and concerned about Strauss's conduct as early as 1979, but failed to investigate in any meaningful way. Well, who does that mean? Jim Jordan, disproportionate number of wrestlers we know were abused and settled lawsuits here. Jim Jordan is recently the, the star Big Ten wrestler at Wisconsin. He's only a few years older than the wrestlers. He's recruiting them. If Jim Jordan is 
not acting on these complaints, you want to say who is. So I think there, there's a question here about duties to care, duties as an assistant coach. And if you go to your assistant coach, who's only a few years older than you are, you look up to him, he's, he's the cool guy who won a national championship at Wisconsin, comes to Columbus. If he's essentially doing nothing and, and rolling his eyes and cracking jokes, talking about he kicked the guy's ass and snapped him like balsa wood. Again, those, those are quotes from players he's recruited. So, uh, this guy you look up to is a few years older than you. The big star wrestler is, is not taking this seriously. You, you understand how Richard Strauss was able to do what he did for two decades. Read John Wertheim in Sports Illustrated. Watch him on 60 Minutes. John, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Up next, a baseball brouhaha between the Phillies and the Braves. The Philadelphia Phillies host the Arizona Diamondbacks in game one of the NL Championship Series on Monday night after we have recorded this show. But let's go back to game two of the divisional series when the Phils lost to the Atlanta Braves after Bryce Harper was doubled up at first base to end things. Jake Mintz, a columnist for Fox Sports, described Braves players celebrating in the locker room after the game. He noted that shortstop Orlando Arcia cackled emphatically about Harper's misfortune, bellowing, ha-ha, attaboy, Harper, repeatedly as reporters circled the room. Braves players, non-Braves players, and Braves announcers all castigated Mintz for reporting Arcia's words, and a few national baseball media members did too, most notably Alana Rizzo of MLB Network, who went on an epic rant against bloggers or podcasters, not even reporters, violating the sacred space of the locker room. Pablo, before we get into the relationship between journalists and athletes, I want to point out my favorite part of this, which is that mm. the Arcia anecdote appeared in the last sentence of the 21st paragraph of Mince's 24-paragraph column about the game. He didn't even think it was that notable. It is amazing that a baseball player going Nelson Muntz in a clubhouse has sparked a grand existential reckoning with what it means to be a journalist. I just want to identify the biggest loser in all of this, which is just the Atlanta Braves as an institution. Like, oh my God. It is one thing, we can talk about the ethics of journalism and all of that, but it is so profoundly lame to care so much about this and to be so impotent in your ability to defeat the person who actually did it, such that you are therefore left beating up on a blogger in a way that makes me feel like we're, it's 2005. The real comeuppance here, Stefan, was Bryce Harper hitting two home runs in the next game and then staring yes. at Arcia as he rounded the bases. The Braves before this series were, I think, cool. And the, the meaning of the word of being like unaffected, like young Ronald Acuna Jr., most one of the most exciting players in baseball, just like doesn't give a shit about unwritten rules, steals 70 bases and it's 40 home exactly. runs. Exactly. They bring all of these young players up. They've got just this incredible team. They've just run roughshod through the National League East, just destroying the Mets spirit every single year. Won a World Series and 
they just came out, and I hate to use this term because it's such a like grizzled old baseball man term, but they just looked so soft. And they forced me to be the old man who yells at the cloud here in saying that um, because it's it's rare, I guess, Stefan, that we get a really kind of picky in moment like this that not only gets like sports media talking and gets people on Twitter talking, but it actually had a legitimate on-field manifestation in the next game like that affected the players and the players were kind of chit-chatting about it just as much as people were behind the scenes. Yeah, it's the old bulletin board material, but it was, you know, but it's right there on national television. It was amazing. Bryce Harper is the best. I loved him rounding second and staring Arcia down. But Josh, you pointed out how they're sort of young and cool. And the whole mantra of baseball, Pablo, today is that we should allow young and cool to flex it's okay to flip your bat. It's okay to chat at the, you know, at an opposing player. It's okay to show some emotion on the field. And yet here we are like crawling into a corner saying, Oh my God, they heard me say something in a locker room and that's terrible. Yeah. They just own it. I mean, there, I, I, again, there is a little, maybe it's the uh, Arcia uh, effect, the, the Streisand effect here of like the fact that you complained about this so much, the fact that you complained about someone else hearing this so much makes it so much worse than whatever it is that you actually said. Right. Like just own it. I mean, Bryce Harper, if there's anybody who can relate to the idea of some guy, some dudes were just talking, talking shit. It's Bryce Harper. And in fact, that's the grand joke of this is that after the Phillies win and they celebrate, their vibes are immaculate. They are they are mother bleeping everybody. They're making fun of the Mets, to Josh's point. They're talking about how everyone else sucks and they rule. It's just like, why did we suddenly lose the plot in the middle of the postseason about like where trash talk is OK and not? And I think it's because to bring it back to the journalism part, I guess they had no one else to be mad at. Because they didn't want to be mad at themselves, and therefore they got mad at the journalist who was, unfortunately, um, I guess just repeating something that was very, very obvious in this setting. So it just occurred to me as we were having this conversation that when Bryce Harper was 19, he uttered an immortal phrase in a locker room scrum. Do you guys remember? <laughs> yeah, that's a clown mm. clown question, bro. That is a clown that's question, right. bro. Do you guys remember yes. what the clown question was? <laughs> I don't. I, I just looked it up. The clown question, <laughs> and this is from ESPN.com News Services, June 13, 2012. The 19-year-old Washington Nat- Nationals outfielder quipped, that's a clown question, bro, to a Toronto TV reporter who asked if he planned to take advantage of Canada's lower drinking age after belting a long home run in a win over the Blue Jays. <laughs> yeah, smash cut to Bryce Harper being stone cold Steve Austin, just like smashing beers into his eye sockets. <laughs> the thing that, um, so Chelsea Janes, who is another baseball reporter, was in the locker room who hadn't... Um, spoken up and then did a thread saying, yeah, I was there. Jake Mentz is totally right. Um, Arcia did say this because there are people questioning, oh, you're making it up. Like there's, you know, maybe you misheard. Maybe there's a language barrier issue here. Um, but the the funny image of the player going around in circles shouting this and then <laughs> denying that it was said. And I looked at Jake Mentz, Mentz's uh Twitter replies, it's all people putting the rat emoji 
just rat emoji, rat emoji, rat emoji, rat emoji, rat emoji all the way down. Um, And I think at the at the risk of being slightly uh, serious about this, um, you know, during COVID, the leagues sensibly put in restrictions around reporters being uh, given access to locker rooms. Now that becomes the new normal, right, Pablo, where, oh, you, you know, we don't we don't do this anymore or we need to continue extending this indefinitely. And I wonder if this is going to be a moment where, you know, the players don't want reporters in there listening to them. The leagues don't seem to want reporters in there. Um, And so is this going to be an opportunity for Major League Baseball, maybe every sport, to be like, you know what, this has run its course. I do feel like if the league, if Major League Baseball's response to all of this is, this can never happen again, they have also lost the entire plot here. (laughs) Like, this has all been so, it's rare to get just a dose of, it has certainly levels of like, let's talk about journalism in a real way, which I'm happy to do. Um, But there's also just like, oh, now we have a blood feud. Like, thank you, Jake Mintz. Thank you, Chelsea Janes, for corroborating the idea that dislike actually fuels entertainment. And for all of baseball's tinkering this year of clocks and and let's speed up the game and all of that stuff, all great. I love that we have gotten here to a point of just like, yeah, a little medieval, just like dislike. That should be the takeaway. Now, in terms of the players, what their expectations are, I mean, I hate to sound like another different old guy, um, but I think of Don Draper. Just like, that's what the money is for. On some level, I get privacy and expectations, sure. And off the record versus on the record, yes, we should be clear about that. But the idea that a clubhouse is a place where if someone is shouting something and running around in circles saying it in front of media with cameras on and microphones activated, as he himself acknowledged later, yes, I do, that they were on. What are we doing here? Like, none of this feels like a plausible alibi to me. Maybe we need better media literacy, more training. Isn't that the job of the players union? I mean, this is written into the collective bargaining agreement that right. clubhouses are open to the media. And there, there, nowhere does it stipulate that, oh, but what you say is off the record unless you approach every reporter in the room and and assert that privilege. Um, this is just so silly. I mean, the, and, and people that don't understand media and how they work just make themselves look kind of silly. I mean, like he's not supposed to report something that he heard. This is what journalism is. You write down, you record what people say, and then you report it. And that's all that Jake Mintz did here. Um, But there is this weird lingering perception, this tradition of the locker room as a sacred place for for our grizzled athletes where they can hide behind the way they can you know snap towels and and crack wise and when it's open to reporters it is no longer sacred it is open Josh, there is a point, right, at which, like, some sports have decided, like, in soccer, right, you don't get to go into the locker room. Like, right. no. The uh, Olympics. It's yeah. yeah, the Olympics. There are all these different rules. But the whole thing of, like, that's what the money is for, the benefits of being a sport that allows media in are that you accrue sort of um, – <laughs> Your attention economy can therefore be ever more robust, right? You get more stuff, fun stuff, embarrassing stuff. Like, And the question for the players would be, as a union is, do you think this nets out? Do you think the Jake Mintz incident <laughs> nets out to where, like, mm, gotta, we're cutting off the, the fire hose here? Like, to me, it's such small... 
it's such a small little story that became big in ways that I hope everyone realizes, like, one party vastly overreacted, everybody else laughed at them, and none of this should redound to, like, um, how journalism should be done going forward. Well, I, I think you make a good point, Pablo, that um, it's actually not necessarily normal that reporters are in the locker room. It's just a kind of cultural, social, con- professional convention that is one way in certain sports and not in other sports. You don't go in the locker room in tennis. You don't go into the locker room in golf, as you mentioned, soccer, the Olympics. And the rights that journalists have, especially women journalists have, were fought for, were fought against. And so there is, I think, a genuine sense of potential loss because people who work in this profession know that this isn't something that's written in any constitution. It's not a guaranteed right. It can be taken away. And so I think the question of how this kind of nets out is one that leagues and teams and players are kind of constantly asking themselves. There have been incidents where players have revealed themselves as sexists and bigots based on what reporters have observed in locker rooms. Um, And I think baseball is particularly interesting because as we've seen with like all of the best teams losing in the playoffs, the playoffs are like a different beast than the regular season. In the regular season, everybody's there every day. It's just like the beat writers are kind of part of the furniture. It's like they're just around. It's just a job. It's like not like the NFL where each game is like some big event. You're just like hanging out. And then in the playoffs where everything is heightened, you have maybe some like strange people in there who like don't come every day. Everything like gets a little bit weird. Um, It just feels a little bit to me like even, even if it's like ridiculous to have some bigger conversation about how journalists should behave just based on this one kind of ridiculous incident, I it would shock me if the commissioner's office, if teams, if the Players Association isn't actually having those conversations. Oh, I'm sure they are. And yet, Pablo, to think that athletes don't know, professional athletes don't know how to operate inside a locker room is absurd. They are told what the ground rules are. They are acutely aware of when, in the NFL particularly, the locker room is open to reporters and when it is not open to reporters. And to be clear, it is open to reporters for a very, very limited time during training camp, during practices during the season, and on Sundays when they play. Um, So that to me is also the you know, the the absurdity of this whole thing. There is a sh- I'm shocked, shocked element to the idea that, oh, reporters are in the locker room. What are they doing there? Everyone knows what they're doing there. Everyone's used to it. Like you said, Josh, it's a 162 game season. Reporters are part of the furniture. But, th- but there is this underneath it, right? There is a rude reality that is a little uncomfortable to just say very bluntly, which is, look, you guys grant us access. So occasionally we may embarrass you. That's part of the deal. And you get paid in the end in like more money, hopefully, but that's how it works. But also, I think an uncomfortable reality is a lot of times journalists hear things and they don't report them. Well, that's absolutely right. Like, I think that's that's such a great point. Like where this really nets out in the behind the scenes is that journalists have so much more discretion than the people sending rat emojis, Josh, will ever actually appreciate for better and for worse. Maybe it's because you want to protect your access, or maybe if you don't report 
something, you'll get an interview. Like if you prove yourself to be reliable or trustworthy, like you have to make a decision every day of, do I want to potentially make this person mad at me? Do I want to potentially burn access? These are kind of things that you have to negotiate. Or maybe maybe it's not even that sinister. Maybe it's just like, you know, that's just not worth doing. Um, That's just locker room talk. It's not newsworthy. Journalists make decisions every minute that they are covering something. And I think on the range of stories we've experienced before, right? Like someone noticing Andro in Mark McGuire's locker, sure. right? On one end of the spectrum. Mm, yeah. And on the other end, overhearing someone use a casual derogatory term and then having to decide, do I want to make a crusade out of this? Well, the Houston Astros. Absolutely. But I, I would just advise people who have not been in locker rooms to understand that there is just so much more restraint when it comes to, oh, I'm going to cancel this guy than you ever realize because most journalists understand the ecosystem, again, in, in all those compromises, like um, the locker room talk thing is actually real in that very specific sense. Josh, I will, I will note here that it's the 30th anniversary of the New York Mets famous relationship with reporters when Brett Saberhagen sprayed bleach at reporters and Vince Coleman threw firecrackers at reporters. So there is this tension that has existed historically between athletes and the media. And it's certainly a lot worse than, you know, just describing some color from a locker room. And I also think that what this story shows is that there is no more kind of popular stance that you can take in American life in 2023 than saying the journalists are bad and stupid. Like, whether you're a, a player, whether it, it's not, you know, it, it feels yes. a little bit silly for us to be here, like, caping for journalism and being like, <laughs> everybody knows they're, they're just they're doing their jobs. They're so great. You know, everything, like, I, I sincerely believe that this should have been reported, that this should have been a non-story, that it made everything more fun. But... If you complain that a journalist was doing something they shouldn't have been doing, was revealing something they shouldn't have been revealed, that's going to be a very popular opinion. People don't like, especially for fans, like people don't like their team to be made to look stupid. They don't like things to come out that, um, you know, makes a a player sad. So um, this is not going to be something that kind of the median fan is like going to be like why are you why are you being so mean to Jake Mintz? And and Pablo Pablo I will say this that in the history of baseball particularly you know the first 100 years were about hating the players and then it finally flipped to hating the owners but the constant has always been hate the media. That's right. That's right. Look, I'm happy for the record here, I'm happy to be used as um like a fan base's scream pillow, just subscribe to the podcast. That's all I ask. You can do anything you want, <laughs> but just make sure you like and subscribe. Pablo Torre finds out. <laughs> Up next, Shams, Woj, and the rivalry that's shaping the NBA and the media. In a piece published earlier this month, The Washington Post's Ben Strauss got this quote from journalist Frank Isola. It's the only real rivalry left in the NBA. Everyone else likes each other. 
The rivalry that Isola was talking about was not Draymond Green versus Jordan Poole. It was not even Dylan Brooks versus everyone. It was Adrian Wojnarowski versus Shams Tarania. Woj versus Shams. ESPN NBA Newsbreaker versus Athletic NBA Newsbreaker. Stefan, the Woj and Shams story is truly Shakespearean. If Shakespeare always made sure to note that King Lear was a client of Clutch Sports Group, the two men worked together at Yahoo back in the day with Woj being the veteran journalist and Shams the young up-and-coming protege. But now they're rivals who don't acknowledge each other, even as they've become the only names that matter in NBA transaction land, grabbing the scoop on every trade and free agent signing. You mentioned Ben Strauss's long takeout in the Post, Josh, but a week later, we got an even longer takeout in New York Magazine by Reeves Weideman. The stories are kind of the yang to Shams and Woj's yin, deeply reported, carefully crafted, <laughs> nicely written. But you can bet that a lot fewer people read them than they did Shams's tweet at 8.54 on Sunday night. The Utah Jazz are planning to sign former Rockets first round pick Josh Christopher to a two-way NBA deal, sources tell me, and T. Jones on the NBA. Which is sad, I guess, Pablo. Um, But the point that these stories are making is that these guys literally are the most valuable part of sports journalism today. Uh, ESPN's Adam Schefter gets a reported $9 million for his scoop-making ability. And that's not to diminish what Shams and Woj and Schefter do. I've covered the sports beat. I've been expected to break news. It is stressful. It requires years of source making. And what both of these profiles of Shams and Woj demonstrate is just how this fleeting transactional insider news is really important to the way the news, the sports news business operates today. Yeah. Uh, On some level, I'm glad they're paid that much money because that job seems fucking miserable. Just like truly, no part of me reads these stories for the record and sees those salaries and is like, mm, I got to get me that job. I have the opposite reaction. I sort of like reflect on why there hasn't been a broader Luddite revival in America, because every story you read about Woj and Shams and Schefter, by the way, are about how they are like just biologically fused with their phone in a way that none of them are happy about. But all of them know is required because... um They'll get killed by the other if they let go. And so for oh, I think there's I think there's a lady doth protest too much to that. I mean, when Sham <laughs> says I'm on my phone 18 hours a day and I cut it down to 12 during vacation, I think that's a brag. <laughs> I don't know if it's exaggerated, though. And that's I think there might be. I think you're, you're, you're fair to point out that at this point, there's a uh, perverse like measuring contest about how much screen time. They have how much free time they they've been addicted to. But, man, it's just one of those stories, too, where like you step one inch outside of the bubble that is just like sports media or or NBA fandom. Let's be more generous. NBA fandom, a broader bubble. And people have no idea like why any of this matters. Just the idea of like, so they break stories. Uh, it's like, yes, but also there's stories that will probably exist regardless, like one second later. So, like, what's it about then? Well, it's, we root for them now, like, they're uh, teams themselves. And it's like, <laughs> do, you, do you really like them? Well, like, no, not really. But people post a lot of gifts in their mentions about one, like, bombing the other. And it's like, and then someone just walks away from you. And you're like, okay, fair point. I mean, I'm in sports media, and I don't profess to understand why people care about any of this stuff. I mean, your first point, Pablo, <laughs> um, Shams does not drive, apparently, because... I mean, I guess it's good that he 
thinks texting and driving is bad, but he's like, you know, takes a lift so he can text or talk to a GM while he's driving. Um, there's a great sentence in Reeves Weidemann's piece uh, that I will read in full. At one point, Charania set down a piece of toast to type out a text with his right <laughs> pinky to avoid smearing the screen with the strawberry jam on his thumb. It's a very evocative image. But I tried that after <laughs> to see if I could actually do with that with my pinky. I can't do that with my pinky. No, that's just veteran savvy. Yeah, that's you. He earned that. But back to your original point, Pablo, I was reading this. I'm like, this guy is in prison. <laughs> it's like <laughs> he's on house arrest. It's like a Twilight Zone episode of like, you can have all of the money in the world, but you must treat endlessly about whether Harrison Barnes is going to get renewed next season for market rate. That's a good one. My version of the exact same joke is it's like an O. Henry story, but maybe it's like a Xavier Henry story. <laughs> Xavier Henry, you'll recall, was drafted 12th <laughs> overall by Memphis in 2010, then acquired by the Hornets and a three-team deal with most Bates going to Memphis and the Sixers getting two second rounders. It's like you can have the best job in the world uh, or you know, really high profile, make a lot of money with just absolutely no quality of life. And this is like your currency. I mean, Stefan, do you want to take a shot at why this matters and why these people are paid so much money? Well, I think part of the reason this matters now is that what they tweet can drive hours and hours of programming on a network like ESPN and 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 conversation you know about that, Pablo? No. is the currency of the realm. I don't know, Pablo, guys. As you may know, I don't know about that one. No, look, I, <laughs> I I think the counterpoint, though. Again, I just want to zoom out and make this just about like the concept of being a newsbreaker in this way, right? Newsbreaker of transactions. That's what we're talking about here. They can do reporting <laughs> elsewhere, and I, I don't want to even discuss or disparage that in any vague way. If you're breaking real stories, great. <laughs> But transaction reporting, it's not merely, oh, this is going to fuel the 24-7 aspect of ESPN or elsewhere, FS1, whatever. It's you want it to be first on it. You know, it's it's the I'm going to pee on this tree so that uh, the headline has the urine dripping off of it for everybody to see. And that, to me, is a far less direct economic proposition. It feels like competition born of Internet brain. And maybe Internet brain is just the brain of media everywhere now. So I'm on a fainting couch for no reason. But it just feels even more um, diffuse to me, the sort of like cost benefit of it. But it, it's always existed, Josh. I mean, I worked at the AP at the beginning of my career and it was hugely important to be first. And I wasn't covering sports. I was covering like Wall Street. Um, and it was enormously important for me. I once got a dinner at a fancy restaurant from the managing editor of the AP because I broke a big story, which I actually mentioned on this podcast a couple weeks ago when you were away, Josh, about Michael Milken pleading guilty. It was like highlight, kudos, made it into the AP weekly newsletter. This stuff matters for some reason. Yes, we care about who goes first. The alleged value to the AP, to the Wall Street Journal, to ESPN, and The Athletic is that reputationally um, to readers, listeners, watchers, they will become the place that you go to or you trust Correct. for breaking yes. news. Do you think that that is real, Pablo? I feel like we all know our habits, right? And so if you're asking me, do I think of uh, ESPN, my part-time employer, or a former full-time employer, any differently because they're there? Um, 
I follow them as entities on a hellscape of a social media site. Like, that's how I consume it. So the idea that ESPN is getting residual karmic uh, points for just like, ah, news. Um, I, I wish, honestly, on some level that media companies could drift off of the, the exhaust of social media influencers in that way. I'm not even convinced that they really can, though, to be perfectly honest. I do think the behind the scenes aspect of this is interesting, the kind of favor trading that happens. And I mean, I remember reading in Moneyball where Michael Lewis would write about the GMs calling up Peter Gammons and being like, yeah, what are the what are the teams telling you? It's like that, you know, the people that are actually in the sport end up relying on whether it was like Gammons in his heyday or Shams and Woj now, actually relying on them to be sources as much as the agents and the GMs are, um, you know, sources for Shams and Woj. Like, that's the stuff that's not surfaced for readers and I think can lead to some kind of just things that are just so nakedly, like, transactional in terms of how they're reported. Um, But that, to me, is, like, way more interesting than anything they've ever like tweeted or reported themselves. The power is real, you know. The the backroom aspect and this is not again unique to sports. I believe that sports probably has a more cinematic version of it given that there are athletes and and you know all of these these scoop wars that are now public um or at least the uh, I mean there have been stories about Mag- Maggie Haberman and like the links that she goes to to get any and every totally story. and the idea again we talked about discretion and what you report right in a locker room a clubhouse so too as a newsbreaker um but i think something that people should appreciate is that as much as this is um fun meme worthy content for sports media uh, obsessives and nba fans the real action is with the people who run the, the leagues and the teams these people, Shams and Woj and Schefter, are not jokes to them. Like, they are absolutely people that they rely on because, as these stories point out and as is familiar to anybody who's done journalism, um, there's information asymmetry, even among the people that you consider most plugged in. And so if you're a nexus of information, well, now you are, you know, look, the dicey part, Stefan, is you end up putting a thumb on the scale of human events in in your in your beat um the things that happen that teams are doing but you matter without question absolutely and what i think was interesting in both of these stories is how they relate the way that the nba and the nfl for that matter have changed their perception of the value of allowing all of this content to filter out anonymously. I mean, there used to be lockdowns, right, in the NBA and the way that these little transactions, the most minute of them, or things like the 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 picks in in their respective drafts are communicated um and with some exceptions, these kinds of things now are embraced by the NBA as an organization and by individual teams. It's okay to leak stuff. It's okay to play the game that agents and reporters and front offices engage in on a daily basis. Um, Much in the way you mentioned Moneyball, Josh, but it reminds me of that scene in the movie version where they're negotiating those deadline trades and Billy Bean is like hanging up with one GM and dialing up another one. And that has become part of the collective way that we consume sports. So it is not surprising at all that 
that Shams and Woj are kind of celebrities. Fans do care, too. Not about the Josh Christopher thing, necessarily, but transactions, the biggest transactions, are more popular as news stories, as things to talk about and consume, than the NBA Finals. Like, where KD is going to play, where LeBron is going to play, fans care about that more than the Nuggets uh, winning the Finals. No question. And and by, I should say, like, as as I uh, reflect on, like, why I also am absolutely going to be refreshing their feeds during free agent time and otherwise, it's because the NBA, more than any other sport, more than the NFL, is gossip driven, is player movement driven. And so even if the NBA wanted to create an in-house centralized feed of NBA news owned by the NBA, they couldn't do it. And so here into that power vacuum, into that financial vacuum, step one man and then his former protege to fight over all of the money available when you can be a gossip merchant in a way that, let's be honest, I love to consume as much as I am decrying it as lowbrow, you know, relative non-journalism content. And everybody loves to consume it, Pablo. I mean, Pat Beverly tweeted... And Ben Strauss linked to this in his story. Pat Beverly tweeted, I see Woj been in the gym. He given Shams trouble this year. That's delightful. <laughs> it is. It is. Reeves Weidman also quoted our Slate colleague Emily Bazelon, noted in a note to A.G. Sulzberger, um, the publisher of the New York Times, allowing reporters who now effectively cover sports for the New York Times to work for a sports betting company is kind of a strange thing. I mean, I guess it speaks to the value that Shams has now to the New York Times. Like, he is a star. I mean, it's just weird to say that, but, like, he is a star and the rules don't apply to them in the way that they would apply to other um, Times reporters. Like, obviously, the value that Woj has to ESPN, um, it's just not even, I think, worth commenting about that, like, Yes, ESPN allows people to do commercials, like what, whatever. Like that's just a whole separate category. But Stefan, I mean, is this something worth scratching our chin over? Like the, like that you have this guy who works for FanDuel, who works for the Athletic, who works for the Stadium, whose stories now appear in what was formerly known as the New York Times sports page. Yeah, I'm an old man who worked in daily serious journalism for 25 years, so I kind of do think that these things matter. And then the other thing that matters to Pablo. Um, and again, similarities between the New York Magazine and the Washington Post profiles is that they both quote Henry Abbott, who was the ESPN NBA editor and now is the proprietor of True Hoop. And Henry makes the point that for all of the attention that is given to these little micro scooplets, it means a couple of things that a, the league may not feel particularly, um, sympathetic to the idea of holding news conferences or talking to more reporters and also be that this kind of reporting detracts from the larger, bigger stories. Henry says we miss the doping and the money laundering and everything else that's happening in the NBA. Is that a stretch? Maybe a little bit. There's room to eat both, you know, ice cream and broccoli, but there might be some legitimacy to the to the idea that the attention that's given to this does take away from thinking about other issues. Yeah, yeah. Look, as somebody who aspires to, to melt cheese on broccoli. Um, I, I, I both appreciate 
So Henry was my uh, editor at ESPN, the NBA editor. Um, and so he knows of what he speaks in terms of just a guy trying to, to fund investigative work. Um, and there's no question that that is less valued in the era of on-demand, immediate gratification, transaction reporting. At the same time, like, I'm sort of glad, like, yeah, y- go be incentivized to have the worst quality of life in sports. Go chase down whether Josh Christopher is going to get another two-way. And yeah, over here, I'll be, uh, I'll be trying to make vegetables a little more delicious for people. I'm okay not competing with Woes and Shams on that level. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. On a recent episode of his new hit podcast and YouTube show, Pablo Torre Finds Out, Pablo interviewed a former high school girls softball player in Ohio named Ember Zelch. Zelch is trans, and she was the target of a bill passed by the state's House of Representatives in June that would bar trans women and girls from playing school sports. Pablo Ember Zelch graduated last spring, but before that, starting in ninth grade, she underwent rigorous and confusing medical and disclosure rules to be approved to play, and then she testified multiple times in front of the state legislators who didn't seem to care about some basic facts, like that Ember Zelch was the only trans girl approved to play high school sports in Ohio. Let's listen to a clip from the show. Do you think that they knew that you were the only one? Do you think they know, did they know your name? At the time, they didn't. They probably didn't even know I was the only one. But when I started advocacy work, I made sure that they knew. That was an immediate thing that I would tell politicians when I had one-on-one conversations. I'd be like, so we're very clear, this is a law directed exclusively at me right now. Pablo, I watched the interview, and let me say that Ember Zelch is awesome. Um, Tell us a (laughs) little bit more about her and your piece. Yeah, so again, I aspire to melt some cheese on your broccoli, right? And so for me, trans female athletes in sports has been this incredible boogeyman that is so sold and persuasively sold on Fox News and in presidential debates and everywhere because it feels like a winning issue. And my suspicion, my hypothesis, was that there has to be a way in on this story that is both funny and um, actually revealing of what it's actually like to be one of these athletes. Because the story of Amber Zelch is the story of someone who, like a lot of her peers, um, trans female athletes, trans girls, it's almost always about trans girls, by the way, the controversies, because, of course, these are people who are born boys who are now stealing your scholarships. Um, the condition of Ember Zelch's life should be understood through the lens of someone who cares so much about playing softball, who will do all the things you reference, <laughs> Stefan, and more. Um, and yet isn't that good at softball. Like, is a mediocre backup catcher whose mom said very bluntly that she has never hit a home run in her life? And and she herself, Ember, has a sense of humor about that. 
And so this notion of like there is one kid in Ohio who your legislation is affecting, they suck at softball. Here they are. It's like, oh, this is why we don't meet Ember Zelch on Fox News. This is why there aren't commercials with Ember Zelch on the right side of the aisle. And it's because the reality is so much more mundane and in that way funny. Like imagine what it must be like to show up somewhere as the alleged boogeyman and then just like be sitting on the bench like not very good at the thing you're allegedly cheating everybody out of trophies for. So to me, it's the story of like meet a trans person (laughs) and you might be surprised by what you find. It might not be, um, yeah, the crisis, the moral panic that you've been sold. Everybody should uh, listen and or watch the show. We'll post a link on our show page. Josh, what's your Ember Zelch? All right, Pablo, you are a man of many talents. I would say that your greatest superpower, though, is knowing which athletes are Asian. Uh, Mm, Yes, yep. Who would you say say are your top two or three athletes who people might not know have Asian heritage. Limit yourself to two or three, please. Glad you asked. My crypto Asian power rankings. Um I'm gonna make it I'm gonna make it easy. I'm gonna make it NFL centric, right? Because I'm watching the NFL and I'm thinking about two guys in particular. Number one, the namesake of my fantasy football team, Pablo's part Filipinos, is the running back for the Las Vegas Raiders, Josh Jacobs. Didn't know know that one. Didn't know that one. Part Filipino. Part Filipino, Josh Starting Jacobs. running back on my team. Now I'm so happy to have him. Dude, Steph- Stefan's and- part Filipinos. <laughs> That's right. Stefan's part Filipinos. Um, you employ, like me, the NFL's leading rusher from last season. Um, and he. what a joy that was for me. But secondly, I'm going to keep in the same position, actually. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to scoop myself, which I am loath to do. But I'm currently looking into a rumor that I have heard, a plausible rumor that I have heard um, that Marshawn Lynch is part Filipino. Whoa. And this would change fucking everything, guys. This is like, like Woj level, if true. Yeah, I, 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 I have been informed reliably <laughs> by my sources in the part Filipino community um, that Marshawn Lynch has Filipino blood. And that guy is just number one overall in the power rankings of people that I would want to just like spend an afternoon with probably on the planet. So um, if Marshawn Lynch- Which, by the way, you can do in your (laughs) role as a journalist, Pablo. Well, and this is why I'm here um, on Hang Up and Listen. If Marshawn Lynch- you stuck around for the afterballs. Just know <laughs> that I am I am interested in confirming some some journalism. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, I now am slightly loath to continue with my afterball because that's <laughs> way more exciting than what I have. But the show is Pablo Torre finds out, and I'm here to educate you, my mm. friend, because I didn't hear you mention any tennis players, and because I'm generous of spirit, I want to help you out. Everyone knows Michael Chang, obviously. Parents immigrated from Taiwan. Obviously, Naomi Osaka represents Japan internationally. Her father's Haitian-American, moved to the U.S. when she was three. So we're counting her as Asian-American. Also, uh, Brandon Nakashima, his father is Japanese-American. His mother immigrated to the U.S. from Vietnam, won the next-gen title last year, American great uh, for the future. Um, But there are a couple of Indian-American players I want uh, you to keep an eye on both of whom are currently at Stanford. There's uh, Samir Banerjee, who won the boys' uh, Wimbledon, junior Wimbledon, two years ago, one for the future. There's also Nishesh Basavareddy, who just made it to a final 
and the challenger circuit, he's only 18 years old. So Nishesh, I think either of them could be the greatest Indian American athlete ever. Just maybe for the future, come back in like 15 years, play this again. We'll see. <laughs> I'm well, uh... well, talk to some Indians about cricket players. But anyway, Indian American, Indian American. Oh, Indian American. I thought you said Indian. Okay. I feel, Stefan, I just feel like uh, Josh did that to flex his ability to pronounce those names. Seriously. <laughs> That's how that felt to me. How much practice did you, did you, did you? <laughs> very, very little. Um, all right. And now the two big names. Our oh, big fi- bigger names? So two big names. First, last match that Rafael Nadal played uh, before his long injury layoff was at the Australian Open, lost to an American, Mackenzie McDonald. Mackenzie McDonald goes by Mackie. His mother is uh, Chinese. He went to UCLA, won the NCAA singles and doubles in 2016. As a pro, he just reached his career high of number 38, which is pretty awesome. Wow. Earlier this month, he's made the fourth round in both Australia and Wimbledon. He also recently ended a match on the Asian swing of the ATP Tour against the Chinese opponent, Jerry Shang, by giving Jerry Shang a piggyback ride to his chair (laughs) because Jerry Shang was cramping up. Now, that is solidarity. That that is an Asian swing. (laughs) Mackenzie McDonald. Uh, is a guy to know. All right. On the women's Man. side, on the women's side, there is just one of the best players in the world, the number four ranked singles player, Jessica Pagula. Jessica Pagula, the daughter of Buffalo Bills owners, Terry and Kim Pagula. Her mother, Kim, was born in Seoul and abandoned outside a police station by her birth parents. She was later adopted by a white American family, had not been back to Seoul until 2019 when she traveled there with her daughter, for a tennis tournament. During that uh, that visit, 2019, they visited the orphanage where Kim had lived as a child. Jessica Pagula was back in Seoul this past week and won the tournament. Afterwards, she tweeted, this one is extra special. I'm half Korean. I'm still learning about my culture, but I've been overwhelmed by the support from Korean fans. And then, or I guess it was before, she had this to say in the on-court victory ceremony. I'm sorry I don't speak, um, but I do like Korean barbecue and I do like kimchi, so I guess that's the Korean in me. Um, But yes, my mom is Korean and she was adopted from here, so it's really special to be able to win here. Um, Yeah, not a lot of people can can say that, so it's it's really cool. And the last few years, as my rankings gone up, I've definitely felt so much more you know support from you guys and fans. So there you have it, Pablo. Uh, she doesn't speak Korean, but she likes Korean barbecue and does like kimchi. So that's... I have been writing down all of these names <laughs> and all of these biographical details. Um, I also like Korean barbecue and kimchi, and I'm not Korean. Um, all I got is, uh, oh, I forgot. Oh, you know what? Did you guys know that Peyton Pritchard? No. Part, part Asian. That's right. That's right. I can't let Josh five up me with these Asian <laughs> athletes. I got to throw my my back pocket card, which is uh, Celtics card Peyton Richard. Yeah. Crypto Asian. Pablo, we'll expect you to come back on after you confirm the Marshawn Lynch story. Oh, my God. Yeah. You, you can call me from the Pulitzer ceremony. That is our show for today. But we'll have Pablo back to once he has that scoop, but not before. <laughs> our producer is Kevin Bendis. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. 
go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Pablo Torre, show as Pablo Torre finds out. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Anytime. Anytime you want to, you know, identify some more Asians, I'm your guy. For Pablo and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zamo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs> 